Things are not always as they appear. Things are not always as they appear. Now that's pretty cool. Imagine how long it took to set that thing up, right? In our lives, um, we as human beings, it is in our nature to somehow desire to see things despite the fact that there may be, there may be a lot of garbage around. There's something in our nature that somehow says, no, 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 don't look at it that way. There, we can form it and make it be what we want it to be. But the truth is, even though sometimes we're looking at something uh, that looks like one thing, the truth is what's behind it is a lot of garbage and a lot of brokenness, but somehow we've created something to look the way we want it to look, even though it's not really true. It's just a figment uh, of our imagination. It's not deep truth. And so we've been in this series um, called Defining the Relationship, which seems to have profound power. Um, it was the talk of the men's retreat this weekend. I know a lot of the groups are working their way through it. Um, and it's based off of uh, some of the material in a book called With. And defining the relationship, we're having these DTR talks. You know, these are the talks that the kids have uh, when they get together. You know, let, let's explain. Let's, I, you know, I know we've been in a relationship, but I think it's time that we sat down and, and talked about this relationship. I mean, is it an exclusive relationship? Or are we seeing other people? Um, what kind of relationship? Are we just friends here, or is this something else? And so what we've been trying to do is look at the way we relate to God and, and discover and understand that primarily there's, there's kind of four historic ways that we've related to God which are false postures and we live under them. And so what happens is we keep seeing things the way we want to see them, but ultimately all we experience is the brokenness and the garbage. And at the end, a lot of us go, you know, I got sold this bill of Christianity that was going to bring me all of these things, that I was going to get all these things, and I've never tasted or experienced any of it because I misunderstood the relationship. Quickly, if you've been here, we've gone through the false postures of living with God. They are, and you'll see them pop up on the screen here, they are life under God, life over God, life from God, and life for God. These are the ways that we were taught, you know, by our Sunday school teachers or by our mothers and fathers. This is how God wants to relate to us. And, and the primary one, the one that is kind of the famous one, the one that's actually built into somehow our brokenness in our DNA, it's the one we operate out of all the time. It's our default mechanism, is life under God. Life under God was discovered by the ancients who, who had a power that was at work in their lives that they could not control. They needed to raise crops, they needed water, they needed sun, and if the sun didn't come out, they assumed that the gods were angry. So they, they created an altar system and they said, you know what, the gods are angry, I'm going to give 5% of my crop and, and maybe God will make it rain. It didn't rain, I better give them 10% of my, my crop. It didn't rain, or maybe it did rain and my crop was really good. Well, now I better keep them happy, so I'm going to give them 20% of my good crop and 
And, you know, we lived under this cause and effect relationship. So many of us live under a cause and effect relationship with God. I better be a good boy or a good girl because I want to be blessed. And I better not be a bad boy or a bad girl because if I am, he's angry and he's just waiting for me to mess up. That's life under God. God has this will, right? And so this is all religions. They create a God because they're afraid of a power that they can't control. They want blessing in their lives. So they create, every religion around the world, they create a God. And then they say, okay, we're going to appease him. And they figure out ways to appease him. It's life under God. It's our default mechanism. We presume it. I met with somebody this week who was, was, I was sharing with them some stories, and, and they were very concerned about uh, their children. They were saying that, you know, I've got to be a good person because I'm not a good person, and my kids aren't going to turn out that way. And, and you should, I, I related how I knew somebody that was the most godly person I know and how one of their children really struggled. And, and uh, the immediate response was, well, you know, you might think they're godly, but they must have done something wrong. That's our default mechanism. It's deep in there. Like, God's watching me, and if I'm not good, he's not going to bless me, and if I'm bad, he's going to curse me. Second way we relate to God, not in a real, not the, the primary way God desired us to relate to him, is life over God, which is, God has given us laws and principles, and so there's something at work in, in the universe, and if I could figure out the laws and principles, and I'll use, as Christians, we'll use the Bible, and so what we'll do is we'll create three steps to effective parenting, and four steps to a better marriage, and, and seven steps to financial freedom. You go to any Christian bookstore, you go to any bookstore, and you will see life over God is what we want. I don't really need God and all of the stuff that would come with a relationship with God. I just need the principles. That'll be much easier for me. Books sell by the millions. Churches pack up when we teach people, here's four ways, here's seven ways. But here's the problem with that, with life over God. Life over God, you can be, you can be an effective parent. You, you can have a great church, and you could never have God involved in it at all. Third way, we falsely relate to God, which doesn't get us what we're looking for, right? Which never satisfies our souls, is life from God. Life from God is, uh, well, I was in Kansas a couple weeks ago, and it was funny. Uh, once you get into the Bible about, man, it's totally different. And I walked out of my hotel room to go to breakfast, and there in the lobby was the giant TV, and it had a guy, like, you know, with the Bible in front of him just beating on the, the thing. And I'm going, wow, like, in Jersey, you would never see this. This was a, a different thing. But so much of like the contemporary Christian uh, TV stuff is life from God. God just wants to bless you. Just wants to make your life wonderful. You should have that promotion. If you're not, you must be doing something wrong. And so uh, life from God is like God just exists to, to give you stuff. You're at the center of that, right? And God, in a sense, is just out there, and, he, and so all I'm going to do is I'm going to use him to get what I want, build my kingdom. And the last one is life for God, and we do this in the church all the time, and I'm guilty of this in my own life, which is I, want, I love God, I want to know God, and the primary thing that he wants for me is to serve him. So I'm going to quit my job and be a pastor. I'm going to quit my job and be a missionary. I am going to give more money to God so that he knows how much I love him. This is the older son and the prodigal son story, right? The younger son comes home. God is so happy just to be with the younger son. The older son goes, well, I don't understand. All I've done is serve you all these years. The father goes, well, all I wanted was to be with you all these years. And so we fall into these false patterns of trying to relate to God. And at the end of the day, they never deliver what they promise. We're still afraid because we can't get what we want. 
We lack the, we, and we can't control him. And here's the reason why. Because you and I were created from, from the Garden of Eden all the way to the end of the Bible and Revelation. You were created to live a life not under or over or from or for God. You were created to live with God. That is your core. Your creator created you to walk with him. You go to the beginning of the story. We walked with God in the cool of the day. You go to the end of the story in Revelation. It says God will now be again with his people. Jesus shows up on earth. You shall call him Emmanuel. God with us. If you were here week one, we went through the huge chunks of scripture showing how God's greatest desire is not that you perform for him. It's not that, that you, 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 know, you do what he wants you to do. It's that you live your life with him in constant communion with him. But it's so hard for us. Most of us haven't seen it. And when you do see somebody, have you ever met somebody where you go, that guy seems to be connected to God? It's something that you begin to want. It's really attractive, but it's never been taught to us. It hasn't been modeled much. And we don't know, we, very few of us have experienced life with God. And we don't really, if we're honest, really, really want a life with God. We just want God in our lives to give us what we want. When I was in Wichita, see, it's really hard when you don't have a framework for this stuff. Because we haven't experienced it and we haven't been taught it. When I was in Wichita a couple weeks ago, you know, my flight got canceled, right? It was a uh, planes, trains, and automobile moment. It stood there for hours. Finally, they said, yeah, I guess your plane's not going to get out. Um, so here's a coupon for, for the hotel. And I said, well, where is the hotel? And they pointed to a building on the horizon. And I said, how do I get there? And they said, well, you go out that door and you start walking. So... Uh, you know, I got my bags and my wheeler, and I'm walking through, you know, and sometimes you get to the concrete walls, you know, you know, put your stuff over, hop over the concrete wall. And I get to, uh, I get to the hotel, and um, that night, I was, I was kind of pumped up because the Mets were on a playoff game, and the Rutgers Scarlet Knights, I have no idea why I'd be pumped up about watching them, but uh, they were on too, and so, you know, I'm kind of a social person, I like to hang out with people, so I said, you know, I'm not going to sit in my room and watch this, it'll be boring, I'll go to the hotel bar, and I'll eat my dinner sitting at the bar, and I'll have, have the guy put on the Rutgers game and the, and the Mets game, and I did. And for a while, there was uh, fellow canceled passengers that were hanging out with me in the bar, and, you know, they got tired because these games are three and a half hours in length, so they went to bed. And what was going on in the hotel was fascinating. There was a class of 1955 reunion going on in the hotel. Now, do the math on this. The class of 55 are not exactly spring chickens. I mean, these were old people that were walking around in the hotel, right? And so you have a young guy like me walking around with all these old folks. I mean, it, it, they really kind of stood out. So I'm sitting at the bar, all my friends have kind of left, and uh, in walks this older couple, and they're old, man, and I mean like old. <laughs> I was surprised they were still up old, you know what I mean? And so they sat next to me, the guy and the wife, and, uh, and you, remember when your mother told you, you know what happens when you assume? And so I looked at him and I said, congratulations on your high school reunion. And he looks at me and he goes, the hell are you talking about? I said, you're, you're, I know I shouldn't say that in church, but that's what he said. So, uh, so uh, he, uh, I said, you're reunion, you're 50, you know, class of 55. He goes, I don't know what you're talking about, son. He said, I'm, I'm here to, we're here on a business trip. We're here to make money. So I said, oh, well, congratulations on, you know, on being here. And so, you know, we talked for a while. And then finally, you know, it always does. The pastor thing comes out eventually. What do you do? And then, you know, then they moved their seats. But he didn't move his, he didn't move his seat. He stayed there. 
because he found it interesting. He started to ask me questions. But here's the deal. He had no frame of reference for God at all. None. Have you ever tried to talk to somebody about God that has no frame of reference for God at all? And so when I would talk to him, he'd say, well, tell me about God. And I would try to tell him. And all he could relate it to is what he would get from God. And he, he even said to me at one point, well, I'll tell you, he, he looked a little bit like, but he sounded exactly alike. I wish I could have recorded it for you. He sounded exactly like Jimmy Stewart, just like him, right? And he's gone, ah, 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 rah, rah, I don't understand, son. How's this going to help me make money? You know, and uh, he was really wrestling with God, but he had no paradigm for understanding who God was and, and sin and brokenness and, and separation and, and, and redemption. And, he, he, and so after a while, I was, I, he was still interested, but he was really struggling to process it because he, he had no foundation and he had never experienced it. He had never tasted it. But the truth is, I feel like this is true of so many, so many of us in the Christian world. We've been told so many things about God. We've studied so many things about God. We know so many things about God. But we have no experience with God. I remember the first time I saw her. She was across a dirty bin of cheap silverware. And we sat together and meticulously rolled one fork and one knife and one spoon into this tightly bound tube for tomorrow's steakhouse customers. And there she sat in her polyester steakhouse skirt. Yet it somehow seemed to flatter her young 20-something figure, and I was smitten. She was absolutely beautiful, blonde hair, big smile, sizzler steakhouse polyester shirt. Absolutely gorgeous. And at the age of 20, she was way out of my 18-year-old 165-pound league. Not to mention, not to mention, this one really intimidated me. She was 20 and I was 18, and she had been grandfathered into that whole, remember when New York City had the drinking age and was 18, and if you were 18 at the time, then you could kind of, you were grandfathered, and you could go out into bars, you could do whatever. Well, she had the grandfather clause, and like, she was going out with people at night, like the places I couldn't even get in. But I knew what I liked, and I worked up some courage. I thought to myself, I don't know what I'm going to do, ask her out for an ice cream soda, but... I'll try. And, and so I worked up uh, some bravery, and uh, I, I, I asked her out. And I was right. She considered herself way out of my league. Turned down flat, not interested. But of course, only being flesh and blood, it was only a matter of time until the charms of John Eisman wore her down. And so we went out on this first date. After, after continuing to be rejected, I stayed at it, and I worked diligently. And we went to a movie at the old Rockaway Mall. And I don't mean that big fancy new theater at the Rockaway Mall. I mean when, the, when movies were movies at the Rockaway Mall. And you had to walk, walk through that pack of smoking teenagers and stuff to get in. And, and we went out on a date. My friend came with me. My, my friend who was probably cooler and better looking than me. Because he thought he had actually a better chance at her than I did. So he was going to tag along and just see how it played out for him. And uh, there we went. I remember one time on the way home, um, if it was that night or another night, we were driving through, we wanted to get something to eat, and of course we stopped at a pub, and she had a drink, and I had an ice cream soda, and I thought to myself, this is a nightmare. <laughs> See, I had started working at Sizzler, because I was following this girl that I really liked in high school. I mean, she had gotten me the job, I had been chasing her for years, and I had a thing for her, man, since like eighth grade. 
Uh, I spent most, actually I spent heck of every waking moment of my high school chasing after this girl. And, and now freshman year of college was over and it was looking like it was going to be the same thing. But then something else, something happened. I mean, the blonde girl showed up. I mean, see, this wasn't a girl. This was a woman. And for some reason, she liked me. And that changed everything. I mean, it was like I discovered something of greater value that I thought could, that I would never be able to enjoy, that I would never be able to have as my own. I, I found this, this treasure. I mean, in my 18-year-old my mind, I was sure of lots of things, and one of them was that the high school girl was what I wanted. She was the treasure that I was seeking, and I chased and chased and I chased and chased for years. But then one night in a booth in Sizzler at the Rockway Mall over a bunch of dirty silverware, I found a greater treasure and I dropped everything else. I went after that. And see, once you find something like this, for me, I was bound and determined to have it. I mean, drive back and forth from Rutgers to Rockaway to work every weekend for, for $3? No problem. Drive to Wayne for dinner from New Brunswick? That seems quite reasonable. Spend hundreds of dollars on Valentine's Day and Christmas when you're making $3 an hour? Didn't even give it a second thought. Pump quarter after quarter into a payphone at the end of a dormitory hallway while all of your friends stand and moon you while you're trying to talk to your girlfriend? Seemed like a regular good idea. Why? I remember one day I got up on a Saturday morning to go to work early, and uh, I was working with my dad, um, and he, he worked at a bank, and I was working with him, and I had to get there really early that morning for one reason or another, and I left the house, and uh, I was just thinking about this girl, and you know, I can't believe this, I can't believe this, this treasure, Why I can't believe what I've been given, I can't believe this, and the next thing I know, I was supposed to be driving to this bank in Essex County, the next conscious memory I have, I was in her driveway getting out of the car at 6.30 in the morning, about to knock on her door. Something happened. I found what I had been looking for. It was of greater value than anything else I had, even, I had ever experienced. I had found the love and the grace of one that was so incredible, I couldn't imagine of living a life without her, and nothing else seemed, it didn't matter what it would cost. Nothing else seemed to matter. I mean, the cash and the quarters and the gas money, it didn't matter because the treasure on the other end of the phone or the end of the drive, it was much more important because what I started to taste, what I really actually knew, and I didn't have to work myself up for it, was this, where my treasure was, that's where my heart was. You see, Jesus said something. I mean, I didn't know it at the time. Jesus said something like that once. So, where's your treasure? Because that's where your heart is. I mean, let me ask you a profound question. What is it that you want more than anything else in the world? If I, could, if I could open you up and peel back the layers of your heart and just keep peeling them back, going deeper, going deeper, once I got to your core, what is the center desire of your heart? Where's your universe centered? We've been looking at these false ways of relating to God. And each of them have something at that operate at the center of those universes, a way of understanding God and the world. For those of us, for example, that relate to God, the default mechanism of life under God, right? 
you know, be good, get blessed, be bad, get cursed. In that posture, at the center of the universe, is kind of an angry, judgmental, capricious God. He kind of does what he wants. We better keep him happy. It's just this will. There's this, this divine will that's at the center of, of that universe. And, and so when the divine will is at the center of your universe, you have to figure out ways to keep the divine will happy. In the life over God posture, right, the center of the universe are laws and principles. Who needs the watchmaker when we have his instruction manual? The life from God principle, you know what's at the center of the life from God principle? Me. I mean, I'm at the center of it, and I just get stuff from God. That's what he's there for. He's there to give me stuff and take care of me. And finally, the, the last false principle, the false posture of relating to God is this life for God. And at the, the life for God, what's set at the, the relational dynamic there is divine mission and, and cause and purpose. And, and God just wants you to work for him. What's at the center of your universe? What do you want more than anything else? What's at the, what's at the, the center of the life with God posture. Because if we understood the universe, if we understood creation, the way we were created to live, and we, we took a look at what's at the center of that universe, the life with God universe, what's at the center of it? It's not laws or divine will or personal desire or mission. At its core, the dynamic which runs the entire universe, catch this, is relationship. If you peel away the layers of a with God life, what you find at the center of the universe is God himself, living, communing, and loving. Father-loving Son, Son-loving Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit-loving God, God-loving Son. This communion of God. And when we get that right, when we begin to understand that that's the point and the purpose of life, communion, relationship, love, you start to understand why God did any of the stuff he did. Why you're here. Kevin DeYoung brilliantly explained it this way. He said, if you get this right, when you, get under, when you understand the Trinity, we can say that God did not create in order to be loved. God is not some needy, narcissistic God that said, I, I just need somebody to love me, and so I'm going to create people and they better love me. That's what we think sometimes, but that's not what happened. God created you and I and everything out of the overflow of the perfect love that had always existed among Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who forever live in perfect and mutual relationship and delight. See, out of the relationship I formed with this blonde from Sizzler, out of our love, out of our intimacy, by the way, the scripture says if you really want to understand uh, the way God and his people are, marriage is probably the best way to understand it when it's working right. Out of our love and out of our, ministry, uh, our, 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 our um, intimacy was birthed Courtney and John and Caroline and Caleb. They were not created by us for us. We didn't make them so we had someone to love us. Could you imagine a parent thinking, I have a great idea. Let's create some kids because I know they'll love us. Does anybody have a teenager? God lives in a world of perpetual teenagers. 
God did not create us because he was lonely and looking for love in, in all the wrong places in that scenario, right? God created us out of an overflow of the intimacy and the passion that exists in the Godhead. I did not make my kids to love me. I did not make them to perform for me. I did not make them to serve me. They were born from and out of an overflow of the love of their mother and father. Love begets love. It's at the center of the universe. Relational love, births relational love. At the center of creation, the Father lives with the Son and the Son with the Holy Spirit. And we should not be surprised when we understand this right to see that when God desired to restore his relationship with humanity, he did not, he did not send us a list of rules and rituals to get to God. He did not send us three principles to get to God. He did not send a genie to give us all of our wishes to get to God. And he did not give us a list of tasks to accomplish for God. He sent his son to dwell with us. God came to be with us. And he comes and he enters our messy lives just like he did in the garden. And he beckons us to once again to walk with him. But we'll never get this. Guys, we'll never get this. We'll never get this until we get a glimpse of how great the offer is. Until he becomes your treasure. You see, in every false posture that we've employed in our lives into a relationship with God, they share one common flaw. God, in every posture, in every religion that's ever been created, is always a tool. He's a means to some other end, to some other treasure. I really want a car, and I think if I, if I do right, if I'm good enough, and if I pray enough, God will give me the car. I really want my kids to turn out okay, so I'm going to pray so that my treasure, which is my kids, which is not a bad treasure, it's just a lesser one. I, I'm, going, I'm going to use God to get good kids. I'm struggling with sickness. I'm struggling with illness. I'm going to use God to be healthy. I want to go to heaven. I'm going to use God because he's not glorious enough. He's not my treasure. My treasure would be actually going to heaven. For the ancients, it was rain or sun. And for you and I, it might be blessings or health or promotions. The key is the same thing. Jesus is not the path. He is not the instrument to achieving another treasure. As great and as good as that treasure may be, Jesus is a means to no other end. Jesus is the treasure. He is the means and he is the way to himself. This is profound if you get this. Because if you look back over your life, what you'll discover is almost every time you have related to God, you have related to him as a means to some other end. Because our vision of him is not high enough because we don't see him correctly. Instead, we try to use him to get something of lesser value. If our visions were enlarged and corrected, if we could see the unrivaled beauty of God, if we could grasp his unconditional love, if we could perceive at some level his radiant glory, if we could ever experience his untainted goodness, it would become so obvious that he is much more than a deity that we simply have to tolerate or a device that we need to employ. Job kept it simple. Job said this, look, God is greater than we can understand. His years can't be counted. In other words, if we see him right, we would cease 
to wonder how we can acquire some other treasure and he would become our treasure. This is the key to life. This is the key to life. Understanding who he is, how great he is, and how he is the, he should be the desire of our heart. So where's your treasure? Is your vision of God big enough? Is it grand enough? Or like in the Garden of Eden, have you been tricked into thinking that, you know, maybe there's something more wonderful than God? Have you come to believe the great lie that's been sold to us since the fall that, that, you know, I'm not sure, I understand I'm meant to live with God, but I'm not sure I can trust him. I'm not sure he's good. I think I'd like to take control of things myself. And so I'm going to employ him to get what I want. Mark writes this story in the, New, in the New Testament. He tells of an encounter Jesus has. This Jesus who is to be called Emmanuel, God with us. He tells a, a story that is a little bit familiar. I mean, if you read some, some stuff that goes on, he, he tells the story of a demon-possessed man. And I know a lot of us probably haven't, run-ins with, haven't had run-ins with demon-possessed people. But many of you would say that you've read um, stories of folks that are struggling with some kind of a, a possession thing. And one of the things that you, you often hear is that folks that are, that are in, in this kind of spiritual battle for their souls, oftentimes they take on great strength. Um, they can do things that are almost superhuman, right? And so the story goes, as Mark tells it, that there was a demon-possessed man in this town, and they had been trying to control this guy because he had been creating great havoc in the town. And they tried to control him with chains, and and he would break them, and and ropes, and he would break them, and he would yell constantly, scream uncontrollably, cut and torture himself by day and by night. And into the scene comes Jesus, God with us. And Jesus sees him and has mercy on him. And heals him. Now this wouldn't be strange. We would expect Jesus to do something like this maybe. Here's what's strange. This becomes really big news in town. I mean, you'd imagine if you've lived under the torment of this guy for any amount of time. Suddenly everybody comes back from the shore and goes, hey, you're not going to believe it. This rabbi came to town and healed that guy. That guy's not doing that anymore. Well, the townspeople you would imagine would be pretty excited about this, would be, be kind of wanting to celebrate it. So down they go to the shores to see for themselves what Jesus has done. Let's pick up the story in Mark 5, 15 to 16. And they came to Jesus, the townspeople, and they saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion. That was what the demons within him had said that they were. They were there were more than one. They, they had, the one who had had the legion sitting there clothed, and he's in his right mind. And the people, they don't celebrate. They don't run up and hug him. They were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and how Jesus had sent the demons into the pigs. Now, here's what's really interesting, right? The reaction of humanity to what Jesus just did. Mark 5, 17. And the townspeople, they began to thank Jesus for what he had done. They began to worship Jesus for what he had done. They began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. And this is our natural view of God. It's, we, he scares the heck out of us because we can't control him much as we want to. Oh, no, the townspeople think this God is, whoa, whoa, he's more powerful than one we couldn't control before. This guy's dangerous. I don't know what this guy might do. I don't know if this guy is for us or against us. What if this guy wants our crops or our homes or our kids? I can't control him. Yet, check out the reaction of the other guy. 
the one Jesus had healed. Mark 5, 18, as he was getting into the boat, Jesus, the man who had been possessed with demons, begged him that he might be with him. See, he understood the power of God, but he understood the heart of God. He hadn't just experienced the power, he experienced the love and the grace and the mercy and the goodness and the forgiveness, and he trusted in his ways. He rested in his strength, he found comfort in the power, and he wanted nothing more than just to be with him. He had found the hot blonde at Sizzler. He had found something that was his treasure. I want to be with you. I don't care about this other stuff. And if the key to understanding the value and the treasure of God, if that's the key to life, if the key to life is understanding what you have in God, what's available to you in God, our greatest obstacle is that we have a tainted vision of who he is. We don't understand how great he is, how wonderful he is, how, much, how loving he is. We don't trust in him quite enough. Instead, because we don't understand how great he is and we're afraid we can't control him, what we really desire is just to use him to get some other lower treasure. Can you please get my kid into a good school, God? Can you please, I want to go to heaven, God. This is why Jesus says difficult things to people. Like to the rich young ruler, he says, Richard Lurus says, how do I get eternal life? What does he want? He wants to use Jesus as a means to heaven. And Jesus says, oh, okay, here's what you should do. Go sell all your stuff and follow me. And to a bunch of fishermen, he, he, he says, come and follow me, even though he knows he's calling them away from family and, and profits and, and business. To a crowd on the streets, you want to hear some crazy Christian family values? I love this, right? Talk about focus on the family. If you want to be my disciple, you must hate everyone else by comparison, your mother, your father, your wife, your children, your brothers and your sisters, yes, even your own life. Otherwise, you can't be my disciple. Why? Because he doesn't want you to be his disciple? No, because he knows that ultimately you will not want him. You will just want something else. And you'll use him as a means to try to get it. But over the centuries, some have gotten it. Truth told, mostly out of desperation. I mean, the prostitute got it. She had this expensive bottle of perfume that had to be worth everything to her. But when Jesus shows up, when the blonde from Sizzler shows up, you break the, the alabaster container and you start pouring your treasure out on his feet. You, you see, the, the tax collectors got it. They worked their whole lives to build up big bags of money, but when Jesus shows up on the scenes, they empty the bags and go, you know, we got to repay everybody twice for what we took. You see, the drunkards got it. They invited them into their homes and into their lives because they had found a greater treasure. When you're a person that has been on the outside looking in, when you're not invited to the table of God, Jesus suddenly becomes a prize. This is how Matthew describes it in the Bible. He says, the kingdom of heaven, it's like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. This is like me saying to Joan back in the Sizzler days, hey, honey, you can't work here anymore because I see the way these other guys look at you and I'm really afraid, so I think I gotta take you out of this and would you mind just staying home and not being on the streets any longer because I love you so much and I'm afraid somebody. This is the value I have in you. And then his, in his joy, in his joy, not out of guilt, 
Not because it was a tough decision. In his joy, because he understands what he's found, he goes and he sells all that he has to buy the field. Matthew goes on, he says, again, it's like this. It's like a, mer a merchant who's in search of fine pearls, who finding, on finding one of great value, goes and sells all that he has just so he can buy it. Guys, what is it that you want more than anything else on earth? What is your treasure? I mean, the honest questions that we have to, as we try to understand how we're relating to God and why we're not experiencing the intimacy that, that is promised to us in God is, are you trying to use God to get something else? Or is your vision right because you're seeing him correctly? Because if you see him correctly, there is nothing that would keep you away from him. I, I, I had a friend one time that was struggling with, with um, I'm going off notes here, but I had a friend one time that was struggling with uh, an attraction to somebody that, that he worked with. And I went out with him and I said, what are you doing, man? And he said, yeah, I know, I got to stop that. And I said, okay, so you're going to quit your job, right? He goes, well, I'm not doing that. I said, well, why wouldn't you do that? I need that job. So, so what's your treasure? What's that job? I mean, I can't leave that job. I'm not saying that God's calling anybody to quit a job, but you understand where I'm going with this? We have to start to understand where our hearts are because our hearts are where our treasure is. If Jesus was introduced to you, for example, we do this all the time. If Jesus was introduced to you merely as a ticket to heaven, you have so shortchanged who God is and what he wants to be in your life. He's not an, an end to some other means. If that becomes true, heaven becomes your treasure and not God. John Piper has this nailed so well. He says this, Jesus did not die to forgive sinners who go on treasuring anything above seeing and savoring God. Listen to this. And people who would be happy in heaven if Christ were not there will not be there. The gospel is not a way to get people to heaven. It is a way to get people to God. It's a way of overcoming every obstacle to everlasting joy in God. All these other roads promise you a bunch of stuff that this is why we get so distracted and discouraged because we keep using God as a means to some other end and the other end never satisfied. If we don't want God above all things, if we don't want God above all things, we have not truly been converted by the gospel. We have bought a fire insurance policy. And I would add, if we don't want God above all things, it's because we don't have the right vision of him and his power and his goodness and his love and his grace and his faithfulness and his trustworthiness. Now, here's the key. Here's, here's where we want to do as elders and, and leaders in the church some teaching. It's a place where the church has historically been brilliant, but in recent decades has failed. And it's how do you experience this God? How do you see him and taste him and know him so that he becomes your treasure and not something that's just like reserved for a relationship after life? You know, this relationship with God, this intimacy with God, this power from this relationship, so, so many of us have been taught, well, no, 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 you just come to God because then you get heaven. We missed it. You come to God and you get God not in heaven but right now. You can live and experience God right now. Not fully, not completely, right? Paul said it's kind of looking like a, in a mirror. We see it a little bit now. We'll see it fully later. 
The Bible says you can know God, and when it says know, by the way, it doesn't mean have knowledge of. It doesn't mean know stories about. It means personally and intimately. You can know God on this side of the divide. We can experience him. The church used to be great at teaching people how to experience God. But over the last century, we've been so, so focused on making sure that they understand uh, biblical theology about God, which is important. But it's not the end. Jesus knew how to live with his father in the present world. Jesus knew how to spend time with God. Jesus knew how to live the with God life. Jesus' communication with God was not severed when he was on earth. Jesus did not just live with his eyes set on eternity so he could reconnect with God. Jesus lived on earth connected to God in the present. And he said, watch how I do this because you can do it too. But here's the deal. Ain't never going to happen if you don't spend some time on it. Because when I found the treasure of the blonde in, in Sizzler, I was willing to, I mean, I was starting to skip some classes because I had found the treasure. And this is true of God. You have to take some time. A marriage without time is going to wither. A garden without time is going to wither. Jesus made time because he knew where his treasure was. Jesus, the scripture says over and over, went off, went away to be with his father. Jesus would find quiet places for solitude and meditation to hear from his father. Jesus' prayers were so unique, they were so intimate, they were so personal, that people would come up and say, you don't, pre you don't pray like other rabbis, they seem to just say the same thing over and over again, could you teach us to pray like you? You seem to, be, you, you seem to pray in a way we don't understand. His communion with God, it wasn't just limited to when he went off and prayed with God. Jesus spoke of his utter, moment-by-moment, moment, daily dependence of God. He would say things like, look, I don't do anything on my own accord, all I do is what I see the Father doing, and then I do it. Jesus would say, the words you hear me speaking, these really aren't my words. I'm just repeating what the Father who dwells in me says. There wasn't, you know, sometimes I joke about there's a Saturday night John and a Sunday morning John, and there's a, like a, a, always a battle going on over who's going to win on Saturday night, right? See, Sunday morning John hates Saturday night John because he wants to stay out late, right? But for Jesus, he lived this integrated life. There was not a work Jesus and a temple Jesus and a home Jesus and a Saturday night Jesus and a Sunday morning Jesus. There was a moment by moment, day by day, constant communion, unbroken flow of the Spirit of God in Jesus' life. God was his treasure. And it provided for him everything he really wanted. Prayer for Jesus wasn't a list or a reading. It was a constant connection and communication back and forth, listening and speaking with God. I'm going to close with this story. This is such a great story if you've gotten to read it in the With book. I, I mean, to me, it, was, it just reminded me so much of sitting with, with the old guy at the bar trying to talk to him about God, and he just kept going, I, I, I don't understand how this is going to make me any money. Um, in the 1980s, Dan Rather interviewed Mother Teresa. The CBS anchor asked her, Mother Teresa, when you pray, what do you say to God? And Mother Teresa looked at him, and she said, well, I don't say anything. I just listen. Hmm. Okay, rather said, and he figured he'd take another shot. He said, okay, so then when God speaks to you, Mother Teresa, when he's speaking to you, then what does he say? And Mother Teresa looked at him and said, well, he doesn't say anything. He listens. <laughs> Dan Rather didn't know what to do. He was baffled. And in a brilliant line, it's exactly how I felt at that bar in Wichita, Kansas three weeks ago. She said, and if you don't understand that, 
I can't explain it to you. The beauty of the with God life. You don't have to wait to go to heaven to experience the joy and brilliance and love and grace of God. You can experience it right here and right now. Band, if you guys would come up. Starting two weeks from today, of course the guys that are leading it think it's starting next week, but I haven't told them that yet. It'll be starting two weeks from today. In this second semester, or second service, those of you that are interested in learning the ancient classic techniques that the church has not done a good job reteaching over the last 50, 60, 70 years, um, the disciplines of the with God life, things like meditation and prayer and silence and simplicity. Um, there is a, a book by, by a guy named Richard Foster. It's, coincidentally, it was the first Christian book I ever read. It was given to me when I first became a believer. Um, it's called Celebration of Discipline. He wrote it over 20 years ago now. It's been read by over a million people. You know why people keep reading that book? Because it teaches them how to connect to God. In fact, Christianity Today rated it one of the top 10 books of the 20th century. Most of us have never heard of it. But what the elders are going to start doing up at Grace House in this service, for those of you that are interested, is, is it's not going to be a class. They're not going to be teaching anything. What they're going to be doing is every week reviewing a discipline and going, we're going to go home and we're going to practice these dis this discipline this week and we're going to come back next week and we're going to talk about it and then the next week we're going to go and we'll do another discipline. So that's going to be going on in this service starting in two weeks. I would encourage you, if you long to taste and see that the Lord is good, if you long to not just know about who Jesus is but experience who Jesus is, this is a unique opportunity. The church doesn't do a good job teaching this and we're going to start doing it in two weeks. You'll be hearing about it via email this week. You'll get a card for signups next week. But keep it in mind. Let me get you up. Let's close in song.